Thessalonians chapter 1. And as you're finding your place there, just let me give you an announcement or two here quickly. There are cards for missionary wives that are on the usher's table to be signed. So ladies, please find those and sign those cards for those missionary wives. Also, if you have not received one or gotten your faith promise card yet, it, they, those are also on the usher's table, I believe. So make sure you get one of these, please, and turn it in, all right, so that we can get a good count, okay? And I have a few other things I want to talk to you tonight about after the service is over and during our prayer time, we'll have a little business meeting. I want to share, I told you, I've told you this already that I was going to be presenting to you uh, some that I'd like for us to take on for support. And so I'm going to do that uh, after the service as well. All right. And so we'll get to those things. But 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And we started last week in this second letter that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. And our text verses were 1 through 5. And we highlighted some things about Paul's greeting to them. I'm going to go ahead and read the text and just remind you of a couple of things before we finish out these verses here tonight. Let's start in verse 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus, under the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, Grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We're bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth, so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which ye also suffer. Last week, as we started through uh, this book or th this text, and we're going to work our way verse by verse through this entire epistle, but Paul, we, we highlighted Paul's greeting to them, and, and I'll note for you again verse 3, the first part of verse 3, the first part of verse 4 where Paul says we're bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet. And then in verse 4, he says, so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God. And we highlighted these uh, to, to basically give an idea of the fact that Paul was thankful uh, and proud of this church, the Thessalonian church that was very young, who had endured a lot, in persecution. That's how they were started, under great persecution. We walked through all of that last week. If you weren't here, you can go back and find that online to get the history and the background. But Paul says, we give thanks for you. And what that means is, he says, I'm grateful. That's essentially what it means. But then he says in verse 4, we glory in you in the churches of God. And what Paul is saying is, we make our boast or we're bragging on you to other churches. So in other words, the church had, had been exemplary. He was proud of them. And he says so much so uh, that we are bragging on you or about you to other churches. We make our boast in you. And then he says in verse 3, as it is meet. And basically what that means, it's fitting or it's deserved. 
So in other words, Paul says, we're so grateful for you. We're so proud of you. In fact, we're so proud of you that we regularly speak about you among other churches, and you deserve it. All of our praise is fitting for you. It's deserved. And so that kind of gives the idea of Paul's heart here toward the church. And then we began to highlight the things that Paul was actually thankful for and bragging on them about. And there are several things that are listed in these verses. We noted, first of all, in verse 1, that they were a church of genuinely saved people. Paul said that they were Paul, Silvanus, Timotheus, under the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, notice the word in. He says, you are in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we made the... the the connection with Galatians 2 and verse 20, where Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And we said that being in Christ is uh, is, is, is being saved, and that being in Christ means that you have imparted to you brand new life, and new life changes you. They were a church full of genuinely saved people, and the application that we made out of that was that churches today are full of unregenerate people. If, if they are saved, uh, a lot of it is just shallow Christianity at best. But that's what churches are full of these days. And the reason for that in so many cases is a watered-down gospel that is preached. Easy believism, no repentance, no heart repentance toward God. Just believe on Jesus, come as you are, stay the same kind of a mentality. With no heart toward my offense toward, my offense toward God. No understanding of my sin and my guilt. No conviction of sin. That's the reason why churches are full of unregenerate people because of a message that is a false message, a false gospel that's being preached. <coughs> Excuse me. Christ living in you changes you. It affects you. So Paul says you're in Christ. They were a church of genuinely saved people. But then we made note of, and we spent most of our time here, that they were a church that was growing in faith. In verse 3, he said, We're bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly. The word bound means to owe or to be under obligation. And he says, We're bound to give thanks to God. It's fitting. It's deserved. Why? Because your faith, that, that phrase, your faith, means your conviction of truth. Your conviction of truth, he says, groweth exceedingly. That phrase, groweth exceedingly, means above or beyond ordinary degree. And so, in other words, Paul says, we're under obligation to thank God for you because your conviction of truth in all of your persecution, in all of your trials, it's growing above and beyond what we would have ever expected to the glory of God. Their faith had grown in spite of persecution to a degree greater than what Paul had expected even of them. And the application that we made out of that was that persecution destroys false faith. In other words, 
When persecution comes, it begins to show who's real and who's not. It begins to show who's, who's really built on faith and who's not. Persecution doesn't destroy true faith. And the other application was that we, was we made was that God allows troubling times, yea, even times of persecution, so that He can draw us to Himself. Because in those times, God wants to reveal Himself to a fuller degree in our life that we might know Him more. And when we know Him more and we grow in our relationship with Him, the more that we trust Him. And so Paul says, I'm proud of you because you're a church that has a growing faith, even more than I expected. And then we're going to look at the others here tonight. We stay in verse 3 and we look at the second part of verse 3 and we find the next reason that Paul was proud of this church. He says, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and here it is, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth. The third reason that Paul was proud of this church was because they were a church growing in love. A church that was growing in love. The word love here is agape, which means godly love. And Again, for your understanding, godly love is not a sensual kind of love. It's not a family kind of love. Godly love is something different than all of those. It's the perfect kind. It's God's kind of love. God is love. Godly love is not just a feeling. Godly love is not passive emotion. And godly love is not sentimentality. Godly love is intentionally denying self and sacrificing for other people. That's godly love. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. How do we know that God loves us? 1 John verse 3 and 16 says, We hereby we know that He loved us. Why? And His is manifest. It was made known because He gave Him His only Son. That's how we know God loves us, because of the sacrifice that He gave of Himself. Paul says, I'm proud of you as a church, because you're the love, the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth. The godly love is abounding in you as a church. Godly love is the intentional denying of self and sacrificing for others. Listen, it also, it cares so deeply that it will work for the betterment of others. This is what godly love is. It cares so deeply that it will work for the betterment of another. Let me just say this to you. I know this is, gonna, this is really going to be profound. Relationships take work. They take work. And before you laugh too much here, because we're going to get personal, godly love has got to be the root of relationships. What is godly love? The intentional sacrificing or denying of self and sacrificing for another. The kind that cares so deeply that it will work for the betterment of another. 
most of the time in our relationships, the focus is not on the betterment of another, but on the fulfilling of myself. Relationships take work. What does that mean? Well, let's just get real practical. Sometimes, godly love means needing to have humble and honest and hard conversations with each other so that real truth can be spoken. Let me say it again. Sometimes it means being needing to have humble, honest, and hard conversations with each other so that truth can be spoken. Sometimes what it means is that you and I need to just keep our mouths closed and just listen to what another person has to say about you. Most of the time people won't do that. Here's the reason why. Because the hard conversations that are, that are truth being revealed about us, that don't make us feel very good, or that bring confrontation into our life, we want to run away from. People won't open up and they won't let themselves become vulnerable because they don't want to feel what the truth is going to make them feel. So here's what happens. A real conversation needs to be had. Maybe it's between husbands and wives. Maybe it's between siblings. Maybe it's between friends. And there's some things about you that need to be expressed. You need to see the way people perceive you. You need to understand this. But you're not willing to listen to it. And anytime that conversation happens, all we do is think about the next things that we're going to say in order to rebut it or to refute it or because we don't want to hear it. And we're not actually listening. That's a problem. That's a real problem. But godly love says, because I care so deeply about you, and about this relationship, I'm going to keep my mouth shut and I'm going to create a safe place for you to be able to express what's true so that I can hear how you perceive me or how I affect you because I only want to better you. And me hearing the truth coming from you who loves me is going to better me as a person. Those humble, honest, hard conversations, they require some godliness about us to be patient and to be humble, to be able to receive it. But most people won't be vulnerable like that because they don't want to feel what the truth is going to make them feel. Paul said of the church, he said, your love, one for another, it's abounding, it's growing. That's godly love. 
It requires some self-sacrifice. It requires some humility. It requires a place where honesty and truth can be had, where, where truth can be spoken. But I want you to notice this as well. Notice what he says about their love, their charity. The charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth. We can just skip right over those words. No, we can't. We can't skip over those words. Those words mean something. Every one of you all toward another. What does that mean? I would just say wow to that because apparently all the members of this church had this love for all the others of this church. That made me go, hmm. I wonder if that could be said of us. I think that, and here's where we're going to be just real with each other. There are some rifts. There are some, listen, pay attention. There are some rifts. And there's some feelings. And there's some hurts, whether real or made up, that need to be addressed in here. Godly love says, I love you. If there are parts of me that are negatively affecting you, I need to hear it. I want to hear it. Because I want the betterment of you. And I want to make this a safe place that you can speak truth that needs to be spoken. And you can do it in a way that is going to better me. And all the members of the church had that same love toward each other. Come on. Right? We're all in this together. We ought to be. Right? Well, it's just in my family, so it doesn't... Oh, 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 this is your family. Paul said, I'm proud of you as a church because your love is abounding. It's growing. But I also want you to note this. What he's saying is in the present tense. So he says... Every one of you is involved in this. He says, I'm proud of you that the love of every one of you toward each other aboundeth. Current. That means it's present tense. That means it's currently happening. That means it's continuing. And that's important when we take a look at the history. And we noted some of this last week regarding their faith. Just like he said about their faith in 1 Thessalonians 1 in verse 3. He, go back over there, 1 Thessalonians 1, 3. 
He says, remembering without ceasing your work of faith. Okay? <coughs> Excuse me. He said there that you had faith. He acknowledged they had it. But then later on, he said their faith needed to keep growing. In chapter 3, I think it's verse, verse 10. Yeah, night and day, praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. So he makes mention of the fact that they had faith, but then he says your faith needs to keep growing. There's some things lacking. By the time we got over to 2 Thessalonians, one of the reasons he was so proud of them is because their faith was growing exceedingly more than he had ever expected. Well, he says the very same thing about their love here. In, in verse 3 of chapter 1, he says, Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love. So he acknowledged that they had love one toward another. But then later on in chapter 3 and verse 12, he says, And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. So he says, you've got love, but your love needs to abound and grow one toward another. But by the time we get over here to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 3, he says, I'm so proud of you because your love is abounding. The very thing that he was praying for. It's currently happening. So now he states that it's currently happening, but not only is his prayer being answered, it's abounding. That means it's growing exceedingly, present tense. And it tells us that really there's never a time when our love one for another should be declining or should cease. But I want you to understand this. Here's the application. These two things, faith and love, are the essential elements of the redeemed or the new nature that we have in Jesus Christ. Faith in God and love towards others. These two things are the essential elements of the new nature. Therefore, they are the marks of a true believer. These are evidences of real salvation. John 13 and verse 34, Jesus said, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. And by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. It's evidence of real salvation. You know what Matthew chapter 7 and verse 20 says? It says, By their fruits ye shall know them. By their fruits, ye shall know them. But you know that goes two ways. By what you produce, you're going to know what it is. But what you don't see being produced also helps you to know what it's not. Does that make sense? Here's the point. You got to wonder if some who say that they're saved really aren't. Why? Where's the fruit? Where's the fruit? Faith toward God, love towards others. Here was a church that was being squeezed. It was being pressed 
by trial and persecution. But the thing that was being squeezed out of it was a growing faith and a growing love. Persecution and hard times, listen, they, they show false faith. Difficult times, yea, even persecution. When the enemy comes with its assault, listen, it's going to cause a healthy church to embrace more in love. And trying times and difficult times, listen, they're going to smoke out those who aren't. Why? Well, because they're going to become hostile. They won't make any sacrifice for others. They won't show love or bear one another's burdens. They won't do those things because they're always so preoccupied with their own lives and their own pain. You got to wonder about church members who say that they're saved, but there is no evidence of love one toward another. Paul bragged on them to other people for their growing love. It was so evident. Listen, God never evaluates a church by its external features. God doesn't evaluate a church for its innovations and its cleverness or its political influence. It doesn't, God doesn't evaluate a church for its social prominence. It, it doesn't evaluate a church for its size or anything on the outside. A church to be proud of, a church that God uh, uh, w- w- is approving of, is where the people are real. They're real people. They're not fake. And part of what makes them real is that their faith is growing. It's been tested. And the result of that is that they have love that is growing one for another. And it's unhindered among them. In fact, it keeps increasing. That's how God evaluates the church. See, the thing about this, too, is that all of these things that we're talking about, we could, we could just... Um, We could generalize them. You know, we can sort of make it as a whole and sort of and try to just kind of get lost in the big picture in the whole. But all of these things apply on an individual level because the church only functions according to its individual members. So Paul said, I'm proud of you, your church that's growing in love. The fourth thing in verses 4 and 5 is that they were a church with a persevering hope. A church with a persevering hope. Paul said, so that we ourselves glory in you and the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which ye also suffer. This church brought Paul tremendous joy. So much so that he says he was bragging about them to other churches. Part of what he was bragging to them about is found here in verse 4. He says, we, we glory in you in the churches of God. For what? 
for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure. He says, I'm proud of you because you're a church with a persevering hope. He says, I'm bragging about you to other churches for your patience and faith. In the middle of all your tribulations, that word patience, it means cheerful or hopeful endurance. So I'm, I'm bragging about you because of your cheerful or hopeful endurance, your patience and your faith. The word faith, again, here is your conviction of truth. So cheerfully enduring and coming to stronger convictions of truth in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. That's good. That's really good. Who likes to glory and be cheerful in the middle of tribulation and persecution. But they cheerfully endured the persecutions, and they came to stronger convictions of truth in all of their persecutions. How could they do that? Well, it seems to be tied to what he says in verse 5. He says, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God. What, what is a manifest token? He says, the persecutions and the tribulations that you endure, those are a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which ye also suffer. So, I think verse 5 speaks really about their focus. Notice the phrase, the kingdom of God, for which ye also suffer. I think what Paul is talking about and what it's revealing to us is that this is speaking as to what their perspective was as a church regarding their persecutions. Why could they cheerfully endure in persecution? The reason was is because they had a kingdom of God focus to them. Listen, churches today tend to be world-centered, man-centered, this church was kingdom-centered. Their focus was not on being happy. Their focus was not on personal fulfillments. Their focus wasn't on personal comfort, as so many of us are today. Their focus was not on self-satisfaction. Their focus was not on success in this world. Their focus wasn't on being appreciated so much we hear about that today. There wasn't a prosperity message. There wasn't a psychological self-help message. Their focus was clearly on the kingdom of God and not this temporal world. This enabled them to see what was going on with their persecutions and their tribulations. Let me give you another comment about verse 5. At first glance, it could look a little confusing about what Paul is talking about here when he says that your sufferings are a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God. What does that mean? And we might be a little confused as to what he's talking about. We shouldn't take the word judgment of God and we shouldn't 
uh, understand this to mean a negative thing here. What Paul is saying is basically this. He says, look, your perseverance and your faithfulness through all of this suffering is a plain indication of God working in your life. You're suffering for the kingdom of God. You're suffering for the kingdom's sake. And part of that suffering, God is using to purge you, to prune you, and to make you ready to receive the full glory of His kingdom. It's coming. So it's not a negative. Rather, it's a positive thing to help further encourage them and exhort them to keep on in the middle of suffering. He says, listen, that suffering is plain proof that God is working on you to suit you for glory. And part of the suffering that you're experiencing, God is using to better you. There was a preacher who wrote this, that it fits perfectly with what Paul is expressing here. And I want to read it to you. The New Testament does not look on suffering in quite the same way as do most modern people. To us, it's an evil, something to be avoided at all costs. Now, while the New Testament does not gloss over this aspect of suffering, it does not lose sight either of the fact that in the good providence of God, suffering is often the means of working out God's eternal purposes. It develops in the sufferers qualities of character. It teaches valuable lessons. Suffering is not thought of as something which may possibly be avoided by the Christian. For him, it's inevitable. Because Jesus said so. He must live out his life and develop his Christian character in a world which is dominated by non-Christian ideas. His faith is not some fragile thing to be kept in a kind of spiritual cotton wool, insulated from all shocks. His faith is robust. It is to be manifested in the fires of trouble and in the furnace of affliction. And not only is it to be manifested there, but in part, at any rate, it is to be fashioned in such places. The very troubles and afflictions which the world heaps on the believer become under God the means of making him what he ought to be. Suffering, when we've come to regard it in this light, is not to be thought of as evidence that God has forsaken us but as evidence that God is with us. So says verse 5. All this suffering that you've gone through is a plain evidence that God is with you, fitting you for glory. That understanding, that kingdom perspective, helped them to endure, cheerfully endure in all of their troubles, in all of their tribulations and persecutions. What a church. Amen? What a great example for us. And how very relevant for the days that we live in, friend, even though this was written 2,000 years ago. What will we encounter in the days ahead of us as we draw nearer and nearer to the Lord's return? Well, 
I don't know. But I do know that we need to have a kingdom mentality. Amen? This world is not my home. God is at work, working all things according to His purposes in this world. And we can trust Him. Amen? Now, as Paul goes on, he continues on here and he tells of what is going to happen in this world. Look at verse 8. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He tells what's going to happen in this world. But he says in verses 6 and 7, he says, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you, and to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. He says, you may suffer a little now. You may be troubled some now. But you can rest with us, knowing that God is at work. Church to be proud of. Their love, one for another, was really, it was growing. It was abounding. They had a persevering hope about them. Their faith was increasing. Amen? This is a kind of a church that is a great example. And one that we could look to and say, Lord, help us. Help us to be like that. But Lord, help us just to be like you. Amen. How are your relationships? Can that be said of us, Black Road Baptist Church? Something to think about. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, use your word tonight. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's just keep our heads.